so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Pause one second. I accidentally messed something up on our website. Let me... You broke our website? (laughs) I know. I was updating something and then I... Dang it. What's today? Uh, the 18th. Okay. Today's the 18th? Yeah. Yep. Which is good. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio today are my co-hosts. I said studio, but I meant virtual studio. Are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Greetings, everybody. And, guys, big day, special guest, big day. Jen Kentner. Hey, y'all. She says y'all, and she's from California. We've trained her well. She's from California. Yeah, so if you guys don't know who Jen is, Jen is kind of this, uh, well, she's kind of the brain of the Nashville ERLC. And, uh, or like she she is, well, maybe brain's not the right word. I would call you the quarterback of all things that happen in the Nashville office of the ERLC. And she has been just absolutely instrumental. She's been on our team for uh, for several years now. And we're excited for you to get a chance to meet her. Uh, She and I, I have done a number of things together uh, in terms of writing projects and hopefully future projects. And so anyway, all kinds of things to, to be done. But since um, since Brent is out, we've asked Jen to sit in with us uh, this whole time. And so she's going to be just a part of the podcast today. And later in the show, we will interview her a little bit so that you can get to know her a little more specifically. Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, I wanted to start off with an important explainer about the crisis that children are facing at the southern border. So our policy staff out of D.C. has put together a good rundown on this issue and what you should know about it. And it is just heartbreaking. So we know that during the Trump administration, there was this same crisis that was happening of um, unaccompanied minors at the border. And the problem is still there and it's increasing. So the policy staff says a growing number of children are arriving at the southern border without parents or guardians in hopes of migrating into the United States, which, pause, I just can't imagine conditions being so terrible and horrendous and you wanting a a new future for your children that you send them by themselves to the border. It's just heartbreaking. So... In the month of February 2020 alone, the article states nearly 9,500 accompanied children were taken into U.S. border custody. That was a 21-month high. And then as of March 2nd, a complex in a part of Texas that was designed to hold 250 people was housing more than 1,800 people. So this article explains what the conditions are like for the children, how this is a part of America's larger immigration problem, uh, what's going wrong right now, how the government is responding, how the SBC has engaged. So it talks about a resolution that was passed in 2018. And then um, it speaks about how we as the ERLC are advocating on this issue and what is happening next. I know it is a complicated issue with lots of um, 
Lots of discussion going on, no easy answers, but hopefully this explainer gives you a bit more of a conversant understanding so that you can talk to those in your life about this issue, why it is and why it is so important, because at the heart of it are these children who are uh, God's image bearers, and we want to be able to stand for their dignity in whatever way that we can. Lindsay, I was so thankful for this explainer. There were things that I just had no idea about. I knew about the issue, but I was thankful for the information. You mentioned the 200, designed for 250, but housing 1,800. Another statistic that mm-hmm. blew me away was they're supposed to be trans after three to five days, but they're staying there for something like 37. Mm. So I was so thankful for the information. And also I'm grateful for the ways that the ERLC is actively at work. Yeah. And that's just a window into the way that um, the ERLC serves as your voice uh, as believers in the public square and as the church in the public square, the way we're advocating for things like the dignity of all people. And so continuing on the topic of children, We have an article by our uh, intern, Jordan Wooten. He's written a piece titled, Does the Value of Children Depend on Their Usefulness? Children are a gift, not a liability. And in this article, he's responding to a 2017 article uh, that basically compares the worth of children to their carbon footprint. So it's an egregious argument that boils down to the fact that Because children have a heavy carbon footprint and they uh, bear more weight, let's say, on the environment than activities like eating meat, driving a car, and traveling by plane, that if you have too many kids, it's irresponsible and harmful to the planet. So Jordan breaks this ridiculous argument down and says basically it's a utilitarian view of children or or, uh, it, it values them based on their usefulness. And that is a slippery slope that extends into people with disabilities, all kinds of other individuals, a slope that the Bible does not give us clearance to go down, <laughs> to slide down. Um, and the Bible's view on this is is completely opposite. So he, he uh, gives us a few facts about what the Bible teaches about how God views children and therefore how we should view children as people who live by the Word and who are under the authority of the Word. I'm very thankful that he has written this article. We need to be aware as believers of arguments that people are making out there um, because these arguments tend to, to tend to take root and grow in people's hearts and minds. And so we have to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. That utilitarian mindset can be so dangerous in so many ways. And so I'm, like, I'm grateful that Jordan's addressing that in this specific way because human dignity is so important when we understand the image of God and man being made in the image of God. So this was an important piece. You all should go read it. You definitely should read it. And I'll just throw a plug out there. Jordan is a has been such a stellar intern that he is making the transition from intern to uh, part-time employee. He's going to be one of our channel editors, which works with us in the uh, communications department. And man, like this piece was really, really good because it just combats something that is this kind of lie perpetuated by our culture, which is that children should be measured uh, in terms of their utility or the or some other some other means instead of recognizing their inherent dignity. Children matter because they're children, because they're image bearers. And we don't need a better reason than that to value them and to celebrate them and to welcome them into the world. We should not find ourselves in this place where we're questioning uh, their existence, their worth, or anything like that. This was a really, really helpful look at that idea. 
And finally, because this Sunday is recognized as Substance Abuse Sunday in our SBC churches, we wanted to share an article that dealt with substance abuse. So David Dunham, who is a pastor who does a lot of counseling with um, people with addictions, has an article titled, Why Addicts Must Learn to Practice Honesty, Deception's Role in Aiding Addiction. Uh, This article is important, and it rings true to my own experience, not as an addict, but as someone with addicts in my family. Um, I have seen how hard it is to practice honesty. I have seen how easy it is to deceive and how that becomes a habit, and that's exactly what David is saying. In fact, he quotes uh, Brad Hambrick, who is a counselor that um, has been heavily involved in our sexual abuse initiatives, and his quote is, honesty may be more difficult than sobriety. And that's because um, many addicts have learned to lie in such a way that they cover up their addiction. And so um, it's become just like second nature to them. So they have to learn how to be honest. And David says that you have to just practice truth telling. So he gives examples of this. He gives examples of why honesty is such hard work. He speaks about the role of the church, the role of community in somebody's life as they're seeking to practice honesty and break free of their addiction. And what he says uh, at the end of this article is, addiction and deception go hand in hand, but you can learn to tell the truth about yourself and your problems with the Spirit's help. By practicing truth-telling, you are already beginning to change. By continuing to do it, you are growing. You know, Lindsay, this is one of those pieces that it's important that the ERLC exists to create this kind of content because uh, for a lot of us going through our normal lives, we we may not have uh, dealt with serious issues related to addiction ourselves, or maybe we don't have somebody in our immediate family that has, but we get questions all the time from people who are trying to minister to people who are in the midst of addiction uh, or people who are actually struggling. And this is one of those resources that we can put in their hands because uh, for a lot of us, we're just not equipped to try to help people uh, deal with something that can be overwhelming and all-encompassing in terms of overtaking their lives. And so this was a really excellent piece that I really appreciated because it focuses on something as basic as truth-telling. And some of the questions that that are highlighted in that piece are just really helpful. Even as I read it myself, I was uh, going, man, like, do I have these practices in place in my life? Do I tell the truth? Do I tell only the truth? Do I tell the whole truth? Like th- those are um, those are really in- incisive uh, questions that can help all of us as followers of Christ be more honest in our lives. So it actually has some value even beyond just this narrow topic of addiction. That's a great point. It's not just for addicts, but it's for all of us as believers. We're we're called to be those who speak the truth. And what I appreciate about this too is that um, we can be tempted to just simplify things down and try to give somebody a verse to help them. And while the Word of God does have power, what I've seen with people who deal with serious addictions is that it doesn't always make sense. <laughs> and um, the solution is not a one-stop shop. And so uh, people need the power of God in the Word of God, coupled with practical ways to apply that and practical ways to seek transformation and to put on the new self. So we're thankful to David for providing this article and for all the ministry that he does in helping uh, people who struggle, helping them walk in the truth that sets them free. As I say every week, we have lots of great resources on our site, but for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. So this week for the culture section, I picked five stories that I think would be good for us to work through. This first story that we're going to look at is uh, pretty 
sensitive. And so if you have little ears with you in the car or wherever you might be listening to the podcast, uh, maybe skip through this first section and pick us up when we're talking about the White House. And you can circle back to that later. We're going to start with the story that is kind of dominating the news headlines right now. It's the tragic situation that has developed uh, right outside of Atlanta. And so I'll just read you this from Axios. It says, a suspect faces murder and assault charges after eight people were killed and one person was injured in three separate shooting incidents at massage parlors in the Atlanta metropolitan area on Tuesday evening. What's new? Robert Aaron Long, a 21-year-old man from Woodstock, Georgia, faces eight counts of murder and is being held without bond per the Cherokee County. County Sheriff's Office. The Sheriff's Office charged him with one count of assault and four counts of murder. The Atlanta Police Department charged him with four counts of murder. What they're saying, Atlanta police are still investigating whether the shootings in which six of the victims were Asian women was a hate crime. And then CNN also reports about this. It says, uh, related, in one sense, it's immaterial whether the accused killer in the Atlanta spa shootings admits to a racist motivation. Asian Americans already traumatized by a rising tide of hate, violence, and rhetoric have been living in fear for months. The murders of eight people, including six Asian women, among them four South Koreans, further disoriented and horrified a community already unfairly stigmatized by racial association during a pandemic that originated in China. And they laid bare for the rest of the country the agony of yet another minority group left to question its place in America at a time of rising attacks and harassment. That's exactly right, Josh. I've seen that in my own life in hearing from Asian brothers and sisters around me and the grief. And this is just such a grievous, grievous tragedy. It really is like a, I mean, it is a devastating tragedy to see what has taken place here. And I know in these situations, it is always tempting to say more uh, than, than what the facts can tell us. But as Christians, I think that this is something that is really important for us to work on in terms of our posture when we respond to, uh, you know, breaking news, and especially when it is just uh, something horrible like this, where we're trying to assign uh, blame and determine people's motivations. Like in this sense, here's what we know for sure. We know that eight people lost their lives. Uh, the person who is charged with doing it uh, has, as far as I understand, I mean, he's confessed to committing these crimes, these murders. Uh, there has been there has been a lot of questions about whether or not this was uh, racially motivated or whether or not there were other motivations involved. But wh- whether I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that fully. But what we do know is, and it mentioned there, I mentioned it there in the CNN article. Uh, we do know that eight people lost their lives. And six of these were Asian women and that Asian Americans right now are living in fear. This is a time when uh, they are, they're, they're afraid just to live their lives in their neighborhoods, in their communities, uh, as they go about whatever their normal day-to-day stuff is, they're not sure that they're not going to be harassed or threatened or potentially harmed uh, just because of their ethnicity, uh, because of their background. And uh, this is horrible. It is terrible uh, that Americans of any kind would have to feel afraid of living their lives just because of who they are. And so my heart breaks uh, for people in the Asian American community. It is, um, it's just been devastating to see all of this. And I know there are a lot of questions right now about uh, the guy who did the shooting, about uh, his, particularly about his religious background. I mean, we've seen a number of news stories that have highlighted the fact that he was a church member and uh, the church that he, or at least that he had attended and been involved in a church and the church that he had been involved in turns out to have been a Southern Baptist church. There have been questions about whether or not uh, 
racism and uh, violence are something that is inherent to life in Southern Baptist churches. I mean, people who listen to this podcast would know that not only do we not believe that that's an accurate reflection of who Southern Baptists are, uh, that this vile and violent act is something that is a total repudiation of what it is that we believe as gospel-believing Christians, as the people of Christ. And so my, my heart breaks uh, for these families of these victims, uh, for this community, and for Asian Americans who are who are just grieved right now. It has been, you know, we've, we've said it before on the podcast, but for far too long we have watched, we have watched Americans, whether they're Black Americans or Americans of Asian descent or others be stigmatized and afraid to to live their lives and be who they are because of racism and because of uh, cultural stereotypes, because of intolerance, and these things simply should not be. And and as Christians, we should do everything we can to be the kind of uh, safe places and communities uh, for people who are hurting and afraid, where they can go to be welcomed and loved. Amen. That's right, Josh. And one of those safe places, of course, just just reiterating this, one of those safe places that we need to work on creating is the even the online world. <laughs> so in person and online, because that is oftentimes such a um, vitriolic place where people feel attacked and belittled and berated and degraded. And it just should not be that way. It's just, it's easier to do that uh, when you're not face-to-face with someone. And it still reveals what is inside of our hearts when we're doing that, even if we're not face-to-face, and it doesn't remove the sting. So that's just a place where I've seen lately, in the midst of all of this violence, just verbal violence (laughs) taking place uh, as well that just feeds into all of this terrible, hateful, evil rhetoric, and it just—it has no place among Christians. Yeah, I think that's that's well said, Lindsay. Anybody who was online yesterday, especially if you're if you're part of our like Southern Baptist culture, evangelical culture, and you were online yesterday, uh, or in the last two days in the aftermath of this tragedy, you, you've seen maybe some of the worst takes, uh, the worst sides of of our tribe come out as people are trying to defend themselves and as they are, uh, you know, really just being totally combative with one another. It's just a reminder that a lot of times social media is not the place to mediate some of these uh, questions and differences, especially at a time when emotions are very, very, very high. And what we should be doing is joining together uh, in lament. And so uh, I really appreciate you talking about that as, as far as what this means, even for our online behavior, because I do think that that is a, that is a pretty significant thing. So moving on from that, I'll uh, bring us to a place where there is some good news. So good news coming out of the White House this week related to coronavirus. From CNN, it reports that the White House staff working in person are no longer tested for COVID-19 every day as those on campus have been increasingly vaccinated. A recent change to testing protocol, according to an administration official uh, familiar with the process, said White House spokesperson Kevin Munoz said in a statement to CNN that the White House maintains a strong COVID-19 related protocols in order to create a safe workplace for its employees, such as mandatory mask wearing, social distancing, and regular testing. Now, look, this is not necessarily the the really excellent news that we're all looking forward to. Like, I'm looking forward to people being able to go back uh, to the office maskless, not paying any attention to our physical distance from one another, and just going back to normal life. But this is surely a sign that we are there. I mean, the, the White House being able to relax its COVID protocols is a good sign for the rest of us. It is good news. And as listeners may have picked up on, in the morning, my mom comes over. She helps with the kids, which is such a blessing. And we watched the Today Show. And so um, 
So they have been talking more and more about um, traveling and making plans for the summer. So it's just another indication that things are starting to pick back up and that um, things are going back to quote unquote normal, whatever that new normal might look like, because I anticipate that things will be different still. But this is some good news. And I am looking forward to more and more good news in the future as it relates to COVID. And I appreciate that kind of measured response that sees the hope on the horizon and is moving towards normalcy, but also recognizes that we need to take safety measures right now. That's good. That That's my, Jen is my safety buddy throughout this whole COVID thing. I also want to ask one thing, Jen, as someone from Florida and who lives in Tennessee now, what is measured? <laughs> I do not know why I say that, but ever since high school, people have been like, wait, say that word again, measured. I say treasured pleasure. That's awesome. I love it. Just having to give you a hard time. That's, you know, and I was just going to let it slide. I didn't even notice, but that is, that is hilarious. Uh, so st- sticking with the theme of good news. So all of you or most of the listeners to this podcast have probably already received or are looking forward to receiving your stimulus checks. Look, we won't get into uh, the politics of whether or not stimulus checks are good or bad. We can just say I haven't met anybody who plans to give theirs back. So it is a thing that all of us plan to, uh, if you're going to receive one, all of us plan to put those things uh, to some use and hopefully good use. And it's something we're all excited about. But but attached to that, we actually wrote at the URLC an explainer this week on new federal efforts uh, to reduce uh, poverty in America, and particularly with child poverty. So I want to just read this to you uh, quickly, but this is uh, this is a really big deal that was attached to that massive uh, stimulus package that they just passed as a part of that, uh, those stimulus checks that you're all going to be enjoying were part of. So uh, from the ERLC, we said two recent congressional programs, one proposed and one already passed, may have a significant effect on poverty in the United States. The recent $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill called the American Rescue Plan includes a number of benefits that will affect low-income individuals and families. Although this relief only makes changes for 2021, it could be extended or used as a model for other poverty-reducing programs in the future. So one particular part of this, it says, how would the American Rescue Plan affect overall poverty? An analysis by the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University found that this legislation could cut the overall poverty rate in the U.S. from 12.3% to 8.2% and reduce the level of poverty for children under 18 from 13.5% to 5.7%. Now, that is the number that I have been so focused on, the dramatic reduction in child poverty. Because, you know, it's one thing, I mean, it's kind of a separate consideration for what we talk about when we're talking about poverty among adults, because that that is so uh, complex and multifaceted. But when we're talking about uh, poverty for children under the age of 18, these are minors. They're not supposed to be at a stage in life where they're capable of providing for themselves or sustaining themselves. And so seeing that currently the child poverty rate is at 13.5%, like that, that was jarring to me when I first saw it. And then realizing that just through some of this legislation, there's hope to reduce that from 13.5 down to 5.7. Imagine the number of children's lives that would fundamentally change, that that would bring their quality of life up in in ways that for most of us, we could never even appreciate the difference, but for them, it's going to make all the difference in the world. So that was something that was really exciting to me. That statistic on child poverty is shocking to me as well. And as you said, people can have different views on the stimulus checks and government involvement. But as believers, we want to care for our neighbor and be thinking about when we know that fact, how do we respond to it? And how can we love those kids? And 
And it makes me mindful that I have a friend who's really good with finances, and they've been thinking through as a couple, how do we use our stimulus check because our jobs haven't changed and our budget hasn't been impacted? And I love the way they've thought about it. They've thought about how can we put this money back into our local economy? How can we use it to give our kids each some to think about being generous and to give to organizations where their kids are choosing This is something I'm passionate about and that God has called us to work towards, so we're going to give to this area. And then they also have been thinking through, how, where where should we be giving? We've adopted, and we were blessed by people who gave to our adoption. So who can we, who's adopting now and, and helping meet that child poverty crisis through adoption that we can be giving to there? May their tribe increase, Jen, because, wow, like a dagger through the heart. I've been thinking, what home improvement project can I do with our <laughs> stimulus check? And it, and I have given it a fleeting thought about what could I, you know, how could I give this money away? But I sadly haven't returned to it. So that is just convicting. And I think it'll be, might be convicting for some of our listeners as well. I know the Lord will call us to do different things, but I just, I love the heart of that family the heart behind um, their generosity and what they want to do with it. And just from the standpoint of thinking of child poverty, yeah, I cannot imagine not being able to feed my children or not being able to give them just their basic needs. And even as a child, the, the insecurity that might come from that, that I might not even know, not knowing where you're where your daily bread might be coming from. So um, I am thankful that our, our government, regardless of people's views, and I am no expert on it, can somehow help these children. This is something that you know, my own family, my own experience. I've been really, really blessed. I've never had an, uh, never had a situation or a time in my life where I did not know where my next meal was going to come from, or that I wasn't going to have uh, the basic necessities for life. But uh, th- there are people who I am very, very close to for whom this has been an and definite reality. And in their situation, legislation like this or this kind of financial relief would make such a substantial difference that it is difficult to even articulate. And while we're also talking about adoption and other good things, so uh, one of our colleagues, and I, I don't know if we should do this, but we'll just do it anyway. Uh, one of our colleagues is in the middle of the adoption process right now. They are fundraising because it's really, really expensive. And so if you happen to follow Chelsea, who is a regular guest on the ERLC podcast, you can check out her on social media. Most She's prolific on Twitter. She's there all the time. So if you are on Twitter, uh, you can see that. But she's got links to her adoption fundraiser. And we would love for you to support uh, Michael and Chelsea as they are fundraising to become parents to a child who needs the love and support of a family. And so look, we'll just throw that one out there for free. We'll drop a link to it in the show notes uh, to where they are doing that fundraiser. And look, if you support that, we would be really, really grateful. So guys, for our last story, uh, we're going to talk about something that we look forward to every year, except not last year. Uh, March Madness is back. And so from Axios, uh, they report, welcome to the NCAA tournament's first four play-in round, the first official day of March Madness. And there are a slate of games tonight where there's going to be four games uh, to see who can actually get into the tournament. But here's the fun fact they present. They say from the tournament's expansion to 64 teams in 1985 through 2019, just two games featured Hall of Fame coaches leading a team seated number 11 or lower per 538. There will be three such games this weekend alone, with Tom Izzo leading number 11 Michigan State, Jim Boheim leading number 11 Syracuse, and Rick Pitino leading number 15 Iona. 
And then there was one more there was one more part of the story that I thought was interesting. It said ESPN ranked all 68 head coaches based on their playing careers and Georgetown's Patrick Ewing tops the list, followed by Michigan's Jawan Howard and Grand Canyon's Bryce Drew. And so look, I look forward to March Madness every year. I talked about it a bunch of times. Growing up in Eastern North Carolina, uh, we do a lot of college basketball, even if we're not very good at football. And so all of my friends who live in the SEC country, that that college football is their thing. College basketball is my thing. And so March is arguably like one of my favorite times of the whole year. I am pumped for March Madness because you need something else after football is over and March Madness. And and I don't usually watch basketball throughout the basketball season, but I like this excitement. I love the game day food. Usually we have an ERLC get together, but we're not able to this year. Teardrop, sad emoji face. Um, Josh being from North Carolina, I've heard that Duke can't be involved or they couldn't play a game that might get them qualified because they didn't have COVID all year, but then they ended up with COVID. Yeah. So is that what happened? This is crazy that Duke is not going to be in the NCAA tournament this year. And look, as a Tar Heel fan who is, you know, well, let's just say it. We, we say Duke is puke. It doesn't bother me at all. In fact, <laughs> I'm really happy about it. So look, it's an even better March Madness. I love March Madness partially because I am... I don't know sports. And so most things I'm out, like I can't compete. But the beauty of March Madness is there's so many upsets that you could know absolutely nothing and you can pick teams Mm -hmm. based off of colors that you want to play each other and you might stand a fighting chance. So it's fun to jump in, as uh, Lindsay said, for the food and the fellowship. Right, and y'all all all would need a Jen to live near you during something like this when food is a center point because she excels in baking and cooking loves to feed you and so jen you know hint hint if you want to drop anything by the house during uh, march madness that would be awesome man i love it i love it because <laughs> what you guys don't know is that jen set up my son and my wife with all the stuff they need to make homemade pizzas for pie day uh, which was a couple days ago so that was really awesome and we enjoyed those homemade pizzas and apparently jen made her own crust or something and it was man it was fantastic. So what a way to end this culture rundown for, uh, you know, all these all these things, uh, not just March Madness, but great food too. Uh, Lindsay and Jen, that is your look at this week in culture. So now we're going to transition and talk to Jen as our guest on the show, even though it's been fun to have her sit in with us and hang out. Jen is somebody who is unbelievably talented. Her nickname around the office is Dr. J because she does have her doctorate and she is, look, She's an amazing person who is incredibly talented. We're excited for you to get to know a little bit more about her. So, Jen, thanks for joining us. As you are, uh, as we're starting this kind of interview time, would you just tell us like a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I would be happy to. So I serve at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission as the office coordinator and executive assistant to the EVP. And I have the joy while working here of working closely with our Caring Well initiative and helping churches be safe for survivors and safe from abuse. And I love education, and I love the church, and love so many things, and and I am involved in those things in different ways as well. Yeah, you just should call yourself the Renaissance woman of the office because you have your hands in just about everything and help make the office a better place. So we're very thankful for you. And obviously, this podcast focuses on Christians and culture, and you can't cheat and go back to something else, that, uh, something that we talked about already on the podcast. Uh, so what else in particular are you paying attention to right now in culture? Yeah, I think one thing I've been thinking about a lot is how do we not become professional Christians? 
So we've seen a lot of hypocrisy by a number of prominent Christian leaders. Or in my own life, I've seen friends where hidden sin has been exposed. And I think I've been thinking a lot, even as I'm in ministry and in the local church and in different arenas, are we known? And what does it look like to invite people into our life and welcome people into our life that are going to call us out? And what does it look like to dig deeper with those who are near us, not faux relationships online? And I love, I love social media. And I think there's so many great things about it. And, but I've been seeing more and more influencers um, on the rise. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I know lots of women that are using that to build their businesses and care for their families. But are we being authentically known? Do we just feel like we have friends online? And is it social media and especially with friends living far away, is it fostering that real community or is it hindering that real community? So are we getting our sustenance online or is it just a supplement? So that's one thing I've been thinking through and even thinking through Do I make the choice to go to some big conference where I'm just going to get information? And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Or am I going to make the choice to spend time with friends and be known by them? And related to that, I think I've been thinking a lot, too, about community and commitment and what that looks like. I think we're a very transient generation, and I think the pandemic has made us even more transient. I think a lot of people realize they can do their job remote, and so they're moving, and that's not a bad thing. But I was talking to my dad the other day, who is an interim pastor at a small, small church, and all like 12 members showed up to the membership meeting. And one of the ladies had been at that church for 65 years, and it just got me thinking. Sometimes I think we think movement is opportunity, and Are there times where staying put and being planted will actually yield long-term growth and human flourishing? Gosh, Jen, that is so, so good. So another thing about you, you've spent much of your adult life discipling young women. Uh, What do you see as some of the greatest discipleship needs among women? And what would you tell someone who is interested in doing that kind of discipleship? Well, as a disciple of Christ and when I'm discipling others, I want the whole person So our thinking and our loving and our doing, I want that all to be captured by Jesus Christ and what He's done and and serve Him in that way. So I'm thinking through head, heart, and hands. I think in our culture, we can often emphasize the thinking, which is good. I love learning theology, and it often leads my heart to worship and leads me to, to live differently. And those are great things. But it's not just about thinking. When you think about the great commandment, it's love the Lord your God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's more than just knowing the right things. It's impacting the heart and affections and the actions and the Great Commission too. It's not just get people to assent to these things, but um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that God has commanded you. And so there are certain things that in discipleship people basic things that everybody needs. We want to see disciples depending on and knowing God as He's revealed in His Word. So how can I help this person grow in studying the Word? How can I help them see and savor savor and trust Jesus Christ? We want to see them being transformed by the Spirit and growing in sanctification. How can I help them worship God? And how can I help them walk in repentance and confession? We want to see them live out the one another's in community 
fellowship and church are so vital to discipleship. And we want to see them share the good news of Jesus Christ in word and deed. So how are we helping them serve? How are we helping them share what Christ has done in their life? And I think this is often best done in relationships. So the thing I would say that is one of the greatest needs for women in discipleship is older women. We need women discipling women because there are things that happen in life on life that can't just be given in a book. And there's ways that things need to be modeled where, where others can see someone's faith and follow in their footsteps. And so there's a lot of differences. It's not just a checklist because each setting is different and certain things will need to be emphasized at different times and different places. Each individual is unique. Um, God teaches people in their lives. You, struggles are unique. Um, and discipleship's multifaceted. It involves correcting at times, but it also involves helping and encouraging. And we also want to identify people's unique strengths and build those. Even if I'm discipling someone else and if they have strengths that I don't have, how can I help foster that? How can I help grow them? I'm not looking to make many disciples of me or I I need to fight. Sometimes I want to be just like the people who I admire, but that's not the goal. Um, As we all walk in discipleship, we're all becoming more Christ-like, but we're not becoming identical to one another. And that's the beauty of the church. And so we want to grow together. And I would highly recommend JT English's new book called Deep Discipleship. Such helpful advice and wisdom, Jen. And you're going to carry a lot of this and a lot of your experience over to a new, exciting ministry opportunity that you have on the other side of the world. So can you tell us more about it and why it's such a strategic location? I would love to. Lord willing, I'm moving to the Arabian Peninsula to serve in a training ministry of a gospel-centered local church that equips Christians for faithful ministry and church planning around the world. The nations are coming to this metropolis and are being sent out to places we as Westerners often can't go. None of them retire there. Only locals are allowed to retire in that country. And so they're all being sent out and they're going to return to their home countries or to another place to share the good news of Christ. They already speak the languages and know the cultures. So it's a really great opportunity. And one of the church planners there told me a story of a young man who moved there for work and he was from a region immersed in the prosperity gospel. And during his time there in the church, he really grew and was discipled and taught solid theology. And when his work visa was not renewed, he was so disheartened and disappointed. And in small group, he said, I'm moving back to where no one knows the true gospel. And he said that through tears because he was so sad to be leaving the church where he had grown. And another young Christian who was sitting next to him said, yes, but you know the true gospel and Christ is sending you there. And I think that's such a picture of the opportunity there where here's a multi-ethnic, multicultural church with 60 different nationalities represented. And even in the training program alone in the first year, there's 25 different countries represented and around 50% of those students are women. And so I'll be going with a specific eye for how can we train and disciple these women And I'll be teaching courses and using my love for discipleship, hospitality, and administration. And the need and opportunity is so great that I'm praying that the Lord would allow me to go sooner rather than later. 
Okay, Jen, so for fun, we talked last week about the one-year anniversary of the COVID lockdown. Could you just, because you're a big-time reader and just, you know, all-around smart person, could you name for us a book uh, that you read during this time that you would recommend or something that you watched during the pandemic uh, that others might enjoy? And anything you want to share, whether movie, book recommendation, or just something you learned? Sure. I think I'm going to cheat because I never like, like, the one thing to recommend or the best thing. And so I'm going to give you a whole category. And that is fiction. I read a lot of fiction during the pandemic, and it was so such a blessing to me. One of my former colleagues who is engaged to our very own Megan Smith told me once that I function better when I'm reading a little fiction. He's like, you just need a little fiction and joy in your life. And so Two authors that I've just found a lot of delight in over the pandemic are Andrew Peterson. I read his whole Wing Feather series, which is delightful and fun, but full of gospel truth and helps you think about your heart, but also helps you rejoice in Christ. And I also have read a lot of Wendell Berry. And I love that he's just, he writes, his fiction is about ordinary everyday life and community and the need for commitment and belonging and how sometimes technology and cultural expectations and our desires can push us to move faster and farther and harder than we were intended to move. And so it has me asking questions about what do I believe about my human limits and are some things I think are better, really better, or are they leading us in unintentionally away from human flourishing? Another thing I learned from Barry is that joy and sorrows come together in life and that that's the grace of God. I feel things deeply, so I don't like it when I have things to rejoice over and weep over at the same time. Especially when I grieve or suffer, I want everything to stop. But Barry has been showing me that it's God's grace for those things to continue and for new life to come in the midst of loss and joy in the midst of suffering. Well, Jen, thanks so much uh, for sharing all of that with us and for allowing us to interview you. I know it's probably weird to be interviewed by your colleagues, but your insights there were just so good. I particularly love the part uh, where you're talking about discipleship and you said that the goal of discipleship is not just to clone ourselves. We're not trying to reproduce us so much. We're trying to see other people grow in Christ likeness and in conformity to Jesus. That was really, really good. And then even some of your reflections there at the end about Wendell Berry uh, were just, just really, really helpful. So thank you for doing that. We're just going to ask you to hang with us one more segment. We're going to move now into the lunchroom, and I will go first this week. So one of the things that I thought about putting in the culture rundown, uh, but kept for this, was the fact that, look, guys, the Dead Sea Scrolls are back in the news. If you don't know what that is, so there's an AP story uh, that comes out of Jerusalem. It says Israeli archaeologists on Tuesday announced the discovery of dozens of Dead Sea Scroll fragments bearing a biblical text found in a desert cave and believed hidden during a Jewish revolt against Rome nearly 1,900 years ago. So we're talking about pieces of parchment that are 1,900 years old that have fragments of these scriptures on them. Now, if you don't know anything about this, so one of the things uh, that that people who were critics of the Bible said uh, the first time but they found Dead Sea Scrolls uh, about 60 years ago was that they, they thought that these fragments were going to show portions of the scriptures that were totally in contradiction to the modern Bibles we have in our hands. 
But instead of that, what we found is that these fragments of Scripture match the Bibles that we hold in our hands, the, th- the books that we carry with us to church, that we use to do our devotions, and it just shows you the, the unchanging and permanent nature of God's Word. Now, we don't have any doubt that that's what's going to happen here with whatever they're able to uh, match or authenticate, but we are, you know, I, I was just super encouraged by it because, look, this is this is very cool. Just Just more ways to validate the faith that we all hold to and confess and to see that Look, we, we are, as Christians, often in need of being reminded that we are in a, a modern time, and our faith and practice is a modern expression of Orthodox Christianity, but it's a modern expression of something ancient. Our faith connects us back uh, all the way uh, to Jesus and really to our forebears, all the way uh, back to to those we read about in Genesis, in the patriarchs, with with you know Father Abraham. And so uh, Christianity is a historic faith, and this was a very cool thing to see. Well, I'm happy to join the lunchroom because the lunchroom is one of my favorite places at the ERLC. And Josh, just a word on your lunchroom item. I am an archaeology nerd, so I was really excited to see that. And I've actually been on some digs, and at one, I thought I had found something really, really, really cool. And I had it in my basket, and the archaeologist came and chucked it. And I was like, what did you just throw away? And she said, that was asbestos from the 1970s. (laughs) Oh, wow. The Dead Sea Scrolls is a great find. Asbestos from the 1970s, not so much. But my lunchroom item is an old item, but a good item. And that's been, I've been thinking about handwritten thank you notes recently. Oswald Saunders in his leadership book talks about the benefit of handwritten thank yous. And I've just gotten some in the mail that have meant so much to me recently. And I'm so behind on my list of thank yous. And I've thought, that's actually a good place to be because it reminds me how many blessings that the Lord has brought when I have an ongoing list of things I need to be thankful for. And the reason I've been thinking about it too is moving overseas and having really bad handwriting. I'm excited. I just, a friend started a stationery shop and they are going to be sending handwritten thank you notes or handwritten notes on people's behalf. So I can be overseas and send them my email text, which is legible because my handwriting isn't. And they'll handwrite a card to somebody in the States and send it. And so that's what I've been thinking about recently. I love that. I I need to get better at uh, sending handwritten notes. We have a friend that uh, we used to work with that um, is an older and wiser lady, and she sends me cards frequently, and it is just great. She uh, She's awesome. And so... First of all, Jen, I just have to pick on you and say, I think that you mentioned Wendell Berry because you want to be on Dr. Moore's good side. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why you mentioned Wendell Berry. So I'm going to do the same thing, but not mention Wendell Berry, but mention something that will get me on the good side of one of our coworkers, even though it's not really why I'm mentioning it. So our coworker, Daniel Patterson, his wife is an avid, avid reader. She reads like, 200 and something books a year, something crazy like that. So she listens to some of them, reads some of them, counts the books that she's read again, but also has three children. So I don't know how she does it. So you could follow her on Instagram, Molly Hart's Books. And she's just got lots of great recommendations because she shares all of the books that she reads. So I would highly recommend that um, if you are interested in that and want to uh, get some good books that you know other people have read. And my second thing is just kind of self-serving a little bit, but I cannot get off my mind. Um, My friend Suzanne that I went to seminary with, uh, her and her husband live uh, overseas now while he does a job for a couple of years. They just had their third child, a little girl. They have two boys prior to this. 
Her name is Esther, and she was born with trisomy 18. And just having my second child, I just I just cannot imagine the heartbreak of just knowing that your child is going to suffer and and may not live a long life. None of us have guarantees, but this is just an, an in-your-face example. And they are just um, trusting in the Lord. They are proclaiming Esther's value and dignity and that she has been born for such a time as this, which is why they named her Esther. She's precious. They finally got to hold her. And so I would just ask for you to pray for Suzanne, her husband, Joe, her two little boys, and this little precious gift from the Lord, Esther, that God would sustain them in these days and um, strengthen their faith and just continue to sustain Esther for as long as he um, deems is good. Lindsay, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. I can hear just even as you're talking about it, your kind of motherly heart and just the the love and grace uh, that this family has shown to their child. I mean, this is man, what what a what a hardship that this family is experiencing and being able to do it in a way that shows and demonstrates the love of Christ. That's, that's amazing. And I hope that, you know, for the people listening to this podcast, uh, that they will be encouraged because all of us in our lives are going to encounter things where we find ourselves in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. And even in the midst of that, those people who are true heroes to me are the ones who figure out how to, even through the pain or hardship or suffering or whatever it is, uh, they, they honor Christ and they choose to recognize and value uh, the, the dignity of another person, even in the midst of just the most trying circumstances you can find yourself. And so particularly true when we see parents suffering uh, through difficult situations with their children. And so, yeah, I just really appreciate you bringing that up. All, also related to that, I mean, related to the other thing that you said is to say, look, it is amazing to me that Molly reads the number of books that she does every time she posts, uh, showing us like the books that she read at the end of the year. It is overwhelming. It almost uh, is impossible to believe. But hey, maybe that's what happens if you don't watch Netflix. Does she not watch Netflix? I don't know. I'm just saying there's no way that this person can spend any amount of time watching TV and also <laughs> read the number of books that she does. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe maybe she does just solely read and listen to books. So it's it's pretty amazing. It really is. So that's going to do it for the podcast today. We are really grateful to Jen for sitting uh, in with us through the whole episode. We look forward to having Brent back next week. But if you like the podcast and want to help us spread the word, please consider sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app, leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Jen and Lindsay and myself and Brent out there somewhere in Florida, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back next week with more content.